Julia Hampton and Julia E. Hampton CPAPC have been your trusted sources for local tax preparation, payroll, and business services for more than 20 years. Do you have a tax strategy heading into 2019? You should. Well, unless you like being in trouble. Do you like being in trouble, Jason? Uh, no, but I'm remarkably good at it, regardless of whether I have a tax strategy or not. Well, look, if you have a bad tax strategy or no tax strategy at all, there's one person in town that can help you, and that's Julia Hampton. Call her today. She's right in the heart of downtown. Call her at 816-554-0394. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's a big difference when you love what you do, you know, and and there's so much variety being being an artist with with all that it entails, you know. I'm I very much I'm looking at that guitar and that stand over there, and they're singing a siren song to me because I've been working on a new song, and it just, you know, when you're a writer, you write. This is Rick Gordon. Rick Gordon, welcome to Community Voices. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You are a musician. I am. An artist. Yes. A producer. Yes. All those things. All of those things. And and some that the statute of limitations hasn't <laughs> run out on yet. <laughs> well, well, we'll skip over those for All today's right. conversation. <laughs> I don't know you well. As a matter of fact, I just, just have met you, but I think like most people in town, we've seen you out at Fourth Fridays around downtown Plain. We've seen you at the Farmer's Market Plain. And probably seen you around a few other places. What is Russian Winter Records? Russian Winter Records is my indie record label. Um, there are two kinds of record labels, the major labels, Universal, Sony, Warner, Electro-Atlantic, and then there are independent labels that are not one of the majors, and that's sort of what separates us. <clears throat> well, that and probably the world domination aspect. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> the majors are out for world domination, and the indies provide a home for artists that uh, don't want to be judged by you know mainstream thirty-second streams of, of very commercial songs. There's a lot more to music than just what the major labels give you. Well, I mentioned that you're a painter too, and when I got here to your studio, you walked me around and showed me some of your art collection and some of the work you've done. But I would say musician is probably how you would first describe yourself. Yeah, musician is what I've always been, and that's how I make my living. And it's, other than a short hiatus in my life, it's how I've always made my living. Uh, and so it's it's what I do, it's who I am. Being a musician, an, an artist, by that I mean a musical artist, a recording artist, and, and a record producer. That's Well, before we go backward and do a kind of a linear discussion of okay. it, um, what is your music? What do you tell people a little bit about what you play and the type of stuff that, that you like to perform? Well, if you see me out at the farmers market or in downtown Lee Summit or something like that, where it's me and my acoustic, acoustic guitar, I call it folk rock, and that's mostly what I do. I do some stuff that borders on alt country, but that's sort of what I do. On record, I've done a lot more than that. Um, I've done a lot of records as a punk, post-punk artist, recording artist, uh, sort of that kind of band genre. Is that is that really what is that kind of where you feel more at home? Um, 
Until recently, yes. I, I went through uh, a synth pop stage as that sort of became more dominant in indie music, but po post-punk has sort of been my home for a long time. Um, now I'm really getting starting to get past that. Uh, my last album ended up being two EPs instead of one album. Uh, they came out last year, about this time last year, and uh, <coughs> were released six. Uh, they were released six weeks apart, and the first one was very heavy post-punk punk. Well, is is punk and post-punk? Is that what drew you in? Is that the music? Of your youth, is that is um, that where you found? No, that's the that's actually the music of my young adulthood. <laughs> <laughs> we can call it youth. Yes. <laughs> By the time I was old enough for that to be my misspent youth, that was that was my music. <laughs> um, no, my original music was was the Beatles. That kind of stuff. Beatles, Searchers, Dave Clark Five. You know, I got into playing coronet when I was really little. Uh, like at five years old or something and uh, so you know I was into to what my parents listened to Mary Alonza and Barbra Streisand and uh, Tony Bennett and Jack Jones <laughs> you know and that ilk Bobby Darren and uh, and then in uh, in late 63 in the fall of 63 my you know I, I was very even at a very young age, I was very focused on music. Is like that was my thing, and so in in the fall of '63, my dad got his hands on a Beatles import, and I heard the Beatles, and I had been sort of mildly aware of this music called rock at that point. I would have been I would have been uh, ten years old at that point, and. Uh, you know, there had been some other stuff around. The Searchers had had some stuff, and the Dave Clark Five had had some stuff that I had become aware of. But it was it was that first Beatles album, and then that uh, right after New Year's in February '64, I think, is when they were on Ed Sullivan the first time. Do you remember the songs from that um, first? I I do I I I do and I don't. I re I remember it. We were at. Uh, we were at a friend's house, both families, and everybody on the t on the couch, you know, looking at the TV, waiting for this to happen, and uh, so I was just really taken by that Beatles album. So I would have been a ten-year-old cornet player, ten-year-old trumpet <laughs> player, at that point, who who had already been playing for you know four or five years, and, and was pretty pretty well into music, and then. Uh, Heard the Beatles and bought a guitar with my own money that my parents made me give up allowance. And I bought a guitar in April and was in a band in August. And so that would have been in August 1964. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes me curious about when you decided. When you, okay, so when you got into that band, just a few months after buying that guitar, were you guys writing your own music? Were you, oh, were oh, you covering? No. Oh, no. No, there was. <clears throat> Thankfully, there was no writing, you know. I mean, we thought we were really hot stuff. And, and 
you know, everybody had a band back at, back then there. Every school must have had a dozen bands at it, you know, just instantly when we all discovered the Beatles as prepubescent, you know, preteens. Um, <laughs> you know, there, we, there was no writing, you know. I remember distinctly our band, you know, there were like, I don't know, 10 songs in the repertoire, six songs in the repertoire, that was it. You know, you had, had one by the Beatles, one by the Searchers, the Dave Clark Five. Uh, you had, you know, I'm trying to remember who else, but there weren't very many songs. Picked your and favorites and played them over and over. You did them over and over and over again, yeah. You know, if you played a three-hour party or something, you'd do them three or four or five times, you know, over and over. And people were fine, you know, because that's all there was. And, <laughs> and you know, in retrospect, I'm, I'm, I remember how exciting and everything it was to be this 11-year-old in this band and us, us playing parties and doing stuff. But, God, we had to have been so bad. You know, I just can't imagine. We practiced in the basement, in my parents' basement. My parents had a band practicing in their basement. Love them. From the time I was 11 years old until I left home. <laughs> and, oh, my God, we had to be so bad at the beginning. It, well, it's every parent's dream is to have their children's music playing at all at extreme levels all night long oh i know i know it you know and we and it was it was all consuming you know we came home from school uh and said we had done our homework and then everybody got together in the band practice you know seven days a week (laughs) at what point did you start thinking i'm gonna make my own music um i started getting really by by the time I was 13, I was really pretty good, and we were pretty good. And you know, every you know, all the bands that had started when everybody was 10 or 11 were gone, and there were just one or two left around here and there. And and so you know, I started to to get really serious that I thought this was my life's work. And uh, 13 was a real pivotal year, pivotal year for me because I had my bar mitzvah. And like every good bar mitzvah boy, um, this would have been 1966, um, I was showered with money. It was the windfall. <laughs> it was the windfall every Jewish boy waits for. We all know in our bar mitzvah that all the family and everybody will shower you with some cash because that was sort of what they were supposed to do. And so I had all mine planned out to outfit me with every fine piece of equipment I needed to. You already had your list made. Oh, yeah, to be <laughs> the, the full-time, yeah mensch of of rock and roll and so i went out and bought a rickenbacker 330 guitar like george harrison played and i bought a sears silvertone amp with a i think it had like a 50 watt head and two 12 inch speakers in the speaker cabinet and that was like the state of the art amp back then and i wish anybody had told me back then that those things might be worth money someday (laughs) now that's that's the favorite amp of jack white like the white stripes, and right. so it's real trendy, and so you, they get a fortune for them if you can find one. Uh, so anyway, I, I set myself up, and that was that was it. And then at, at 14, I got my union card, 
and uh, was was a real pro at, at that point. What did you have to do to get that card? What was that? Pay okay. a lot at, of money. At 13 years old. <laughs> Pay a lot of money. I think it was two, that it was at 14. You couldn't have a union card at 13. You had to wait till you were 14. And if I remember correctly, it was $258 to join the Musicians Union, you know, initiation fee. Uh, That's a big chunk of change for a 14-year-old kid. That is. That was a big chunk of change for anybody, and that would have been 19... Sixty-seven. So that was that was a lot of that was a lot of money, you know. And and you know, but you had to be union. The union controlled everything back then. You couldn't set foot in a recording studio if you were a union. You couldn't play at a club, you know. So you get your superhero membership card. Yeah, yeah. And then what happens? Band band starts playing. We kept doing what we were doing, except we could play clubs now and restaurants and better parties and and we got union scale which was 30 bucks a night a person and so you you know you got to put it in perspective gas was 19 cents a gallon and my friends were flipping burgers and mopping floors and bagging groceries and they were getting like 10 cents an hour well you know I play Friday and Saturday night and come home with 60 bucks a week and you know I mean, you want to talk about a life, rock star lifestyle, I had it full on. You know, everybody else, they were lucky if they made 60 bucks a year, and I was bringing home 60 bucks every week, and, you know, you couldn't touch that. <laughs> now, I assume that your, your, um, your, your playlist, your set list, had gone from maybe 10 songs to 15. Oh, or? yeah, the, the playlist had expanded quite a bit, and, and uh, my musical tastes had had. At, by that time, really turned um, away from mainstream kind of radio fare. I was listening to the Velvet Underground, who were new in 65 and 66, you know, coming out of, the, of Andy Warhol's factory in New York City. I was listening to the MC5 out of Detroit and Iggy Pop, all the forerunners to what 10 years later would become punk. Um, but but 10 years before that. I mean, you know, as far as the band, we were still covering everybody, but we covered Velvet Underground, and we covered, you know, Iggy Pop, and we covered MC5, and so. Now, as the generation that follows after, I'm always curious, and I love to hear yeah. people's, people, their answer to this, and how, it was, what was it about punk that, that appealed to you? Uh, <clears throat> I got turned off by all the, the, indulgence of where music went in the 70s you know in the 60s it was all about the song it was all about the hook it was delivering a well-crafted rock song by the 70s it was you know guitar solos you know going on and on and on and on and I never got into the Grateful Dead I always thought you know, I know, I know people will be burning me, you know, in effigy or if they can find me in, in real for saying this, but the Grateful Dead bored me, yeah. you know. I was actually going to say that exact word, that, and people, friends of mine even will, will hate me. Yeah. I find them boring. Yeah, you know, they just bored me to tears and that whole idea. And, you know, I wish I had a dime for every Led Zeppelin song I played in that period, <laughs> you know, and I could, I could, we could go take a ride in my Ferrari. But, uh, you know, <clears throat> Zeppelin got to where it bored me. It's just these long plotting songs and, you know, you'd have the song and then the song would stop and some kind of solo would happen. 
and we'd go on forever and then the song would start again and then there'd be another solo and it just got all too much. And, and I was no longer in the Midwest. That had a lot to do with it. When I graduated high school, I moved to New York City to Greenwich Village to follow my career. I had bought that guitar um, in 1969 when I turned 16. That big Martin there. And because uh, I had discovered folk music and you know, there was no folk rock back then. It was folk music. Although it, it sort of trans went past the genres a bit. Um, <clears throat> is that still a favorite guitar? That is my main working guitar, yeah. 49 years later. And has all the marks on it from that. But, but yeah, so I... It and I went to New York City and and got a place to live in the Rat Castle and uh, started doing the clubs in Manhattan. You know, there are clubs everywhere, and you'd go in and you'd play half hour and pass the hat. And, what know, was that? What was to, that experience like? Oh, I it mean, was great. It's where where you learn to be good. You know, you played all the time. When you play all the time, you get good. It's, you said you learned to play good. I mean, was there that moment where? You learned what you didn't know. Um, yeah, well, yeah, of course. You know, being being in New York City, where the business was real, as opposed to Kansas City, where the music business wasn't real, um, it's huge different. You learned everything how how the system worked, but but you learned to play. You learned to play all the time, and that's something that that even now in Kansas City, there's there's not that kind of ethos in the music community. You go to Nashville or you go to New York or Los Angeles and people play all the time. That's what you do. And all the time means all the time. It doesn't mean what most Kansas City musicians think think it means four gigs a month. That's not playing all the time. All the time is four gigs a week, right? Um, you know, and so you learn, you learn that and and you get good when you do that. And that was the thing with the Beatles, is the Beatles in was 1961 went to Hamburg. And they were there for a year and they played three shows a day, seven days a week. Well, when you play like that, three shows a day, seven days a week for a year, you get so good. And when they came back to England, nobody had ever heard a band that good. Were you intimidated when you first got there? Um, when you first started walking in and saw people who play all the time? Yeah, yeah. I was too young to be intimidated. <laughs> you know, when you're that young, you're immortal and, and nothing else matters. And, you know, just to be doing it. And, and so there, was, there wasn't really any intimidation. Everybody just did it. Everybody was pretty gracious and was, was what everybody did. And so that just became my life. And... I moved back, I was there for a while, and then I moved back to Kansas City because I was playing enough and on the road enough that it didn't make sense to try and live in, in Greenwich Village, which even back then was ridiculously expensive compared to anywhere else. Right. And, and uh, you know, so I moved back, back here, and, and, but stayed, stayed out doing it. You still play. You still I, I you still, still pick up play. gigs. So how many? How often are you playing playing um, gigs now? Last year I did 157 performances. Not doesn't include studio work or, <laughs> uh, but being out in front of people. That's still a busy schedule. 157. Yeah, that's 
that's I like to play all the time. And there are places where I am better known than other places. Um, Kansas City is my home, and so I like to play here a lot. And you know, I like I'm sort of the unofficial official resident musician of of downtown Lee Summit. You know, so I like playing all the time. I like, you know, it. It's just different when you play all the time. You the ideas keep coming. Everything stays fresh. I like. I write lots of songs at the farmers market, on t when it's slow, and I'll just sort of noodle around with my guitar. And I've got, uh, I've got. I think three songs going to be on my next album that were essentially written at the farmers market. Well, there you go. Yeah, we like we it's like that. Cool. It's very cool. It's a very cool thing, and I play a lot. You know, when I play the farmers market, I tend to not take a break. You know, I'm there for five hours. I tend to just stand there and play for five hours. You know, I give myself a minute or two between songs. But so you never know. You could be shopping at the market, and you could have inspired a song. Yeah, and you know. Now I'm going to think more about what I wear, bright colors. Maybe yeah, oh yeah. Me. But n <laughs> believe me, nobody ever talks about what they see at the market. <laughs> And for all you watchers of the Big Bang Theory out there, Sheldon, that was sarcasm. Uh, <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your, your recording business. Russian okay. Winter Records is your label. Your it indie is. Label. It's my label. What all is it? Is that just for yourself? Are you picking up other artists? No, we T have... Tell us a little about what that is. Yeah, we have other artists on the label. Russian Winter Records is sort of the umbrella over my indie music operations. So it's a label. We have artists signed to the label at any given time, about six active artists, about a half a dozen active artists that are making and releasing music. Is um, it all recorded and produced here? No, no. Um, a fair amount of it is produced here in my home studio. Um, a fair amount of it is produced in other studios. Braggers, who uh, are great one of our great punk bands on the label have their own recording studio now. Their first couple of albums were, their first album and their first couple of singles um, were recorded here in my out, my studio. Um, their live album, of course, was was done live, and their sophomore studio album, which we expect to to be releasing in in about four weeks, um, was done in in their studio. They have their own recording studio now. Do you get the same uh, pleasures from being the producer and engineer and, and master that you do from playing? I, I do. Um, engineering is not so much my thing. It's a necessary evil. <laughs> um, I would always rather have uh, a separate recording engineer. At the, but producing is, producing I think is, is what I am as much as a, as a musician. Being a, a record producer is the, the same job as being the director of a movie or a TV show. So you have, you have the performers, you have the material, um, sometimes you're responsible for getting the material and matching the performers, sometimes the performers bring the material and you're responsible then to get it all into a finished record. And the producer, producers are supposed to hear what could be, not what is. And so when you're looking at, at signing artists or you're looking at producing artists, you're always trying to have that vision 
of what could be with them, where they could go, what, what they could sound like. Uh, in the studio, being a producer, you're, you're doing arrangements, you're doing playing parts if need be, you're, you're helping the artist come up with parts. Typically when an artist hits the studio for the first time, it's a daunting experience. Um, you have to play with skit, uh, click track a lot of times. Um, Tell us what that means. Th then that means a relentless metronome that plays in your headphones so everything stays on the beat. Uh, sometimes musicians can't play on the beat, and so it's hard. Counting is hard. It is. It, and it ruined my hopes of being a musician. You know, it, it can be very hard for some people. And so, you know, when you play with the click track, it keeps it possible. Otherwise, you can't edit, you can't overdub, you can't put new parts on. It becomes, you know, if it slows down and speeds up, it becomes very hard to work with in a recording. So, so from that standpoint, sort of amateur hour is over. And, you know, um, you have to be a, a lot better than, you know, from that standpoint. Um, as a producer, my, I have a responsibility to the label, whether it's my label or another label, to, to understand what the, the record is going to sound like when it's finished. You know, when they're out making a movie, they don't necessarily shoot them in sequence. They do anything but, right? They, right. they might shoot the ending first and the beginning six months later, and every part just sort of where it makes sense for schedules and timing. And, you know, with a record, when you make a record, it's not just randomly recording a bunch of instrumental and vocal parts and then expecting to have a finished song. So it's the producer typically brings more of the vision of what the, the final thing is really going to sound like. So what is, I think it's easy for people to think about putting a song together and painting mm -hmm. that picture musically. Mm -hmm. But talk about the difference then of an album as a whole and that 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 broader picture that is six eight twelve songs mm -hmm. and the picture it paints as, a, as opposed to just a single song well let me let me actually do that with a single song because I think being a recording artist and coming in and making a record of a song is different from how people think it's done if you're in a band and you don't have a label and you want to make a recording, you want to make a CD or <coughs> have an MP3 on, on some service <clears throat> or sell CDs at your gig, you go into a recording studio and do that. And you go, you first practice everything over and over and over and over and over and over again until you get everything perfect. Then you go into a recording studio and you play it as perfect as you can and sing it as perfect as you can as, as quickly as possible because studio time is very expensive and you know then you rely on the engineer to to mix it and master it and that's your thing um, and I think that's probably what most people envision when they think of how a record is made but that's not how records are made that's not how a recording right. artist does it um, sometimes we don't even have the songs written when we hit the recording studio and the songs get finished in the studio or they're roughed in and when you get in the studio then you start letting them 
develop a life of their own where they start having a sound in a direction sometimes very different than, than the original direction that you might have had with it. Um, so you don't have a preconceived idea of what that final product is going to be, no, what that final story no, is going to be? No, we don't even have a preconceived idea that the song as it's written is going to be the song as it's recorded. Um, we have lost verses out of songs, we have lost choruses out of songs, we have rewritten verses into bridges, we have, you know, the song takes a life of its own in the studio and that takes time and that's where a record label comes in as most people don't have the money to go buy studio time to record that way and so so when you're on a record label you have access to to their resources their studio resources their financial resources whatever in order to to make the record and the record is an artistic expression it's it's an artistic embodiment of what you're trying to create mus musically and it goes through a lot of stages how do you know when you've got that <clears throat> that right product that picture that you want <sighs> um, sometimes it just is just right there it just just reaches out and slaps you across the face I have a song that did that I had a song that I played for a long time was always in my set I played everywhere I played it at the market I played it at concerts it was always something I did one of mine um, and then I decided you know I don't it's it's not as strong as I would have liked it to have been and so I dropped it out of my live set and quit performing it and I decided you know it it wasn't going to be on my my next album which is the two EPs that came out a year ago and then when I started recording I recorded it and I remember <laughs> so distinctly when we got got done with it um, there was a different person there was a person there named Hannah was sitting there working and, and doing the very, the very hard, thankless stuff that Liz is sitting there doing on behalf of the label, tons of PR and other stuff. And, uh, and Hannah turned around at me and I sort of looked at her and, and I said, well, if I'd ever written a hit, that's going to be it. And that was that song I had already damned to obscurity. Uh, so, so sometimes they just reach out and slap you in the face when they work. Sometimes they never work. I was producing uh, or the debut album for one of the label's artists, uh, Feel Bad Hit, and uh, there was one song on that album that just never worked. It never worked while we were recording the tracks, the different parts to it. It didn't work when we were putting vocals on it. Nowhere did it ever sound like a song that went together the right way. And so we had the discussions of, well, guys, you know, this, this song isn't working. Don't be surprised if it doesn't make the cut onto the record. And, you know, because you want to, as a producer, you know, that's a, that's a tough thing to say to an artist. So you want to prepare them for that. And they, they understood that. They could see that. And we said, so we're just going to stick it away. We'll finish the album. We'll come back to it in mixing and see what happens. We started mixing it. All of a sudden, it just got this life of its own. We hadn't re-recorded anything. We hadn't done anything different. Just Sometimes the, you gotta walk away. Yeah, 
Yeah, and the mixing process, it just came alive in the mixing process and ended up being a wonderful song on the album. <laughs> so there's there's all these different facets to it. Songwriting, you know, is a craft in its own. Um, is, there, is there a portion of that process that you really feel most at home that, like, to you, I mean, is it is it writing? Is it, is I am, it working I am, with an artist? Yeah, is it editing? Is yeah, it, I... I, I like songwriting a lot. I'm sort of at that stage in my life now where I'm trying to semi-consciously transition from being an artist to being more of a songwriter to where, to where I'll, I'll do less as a recording artist and, and more as a songwriter for other artists. Um, there was a, a, a female vocalist, Taylor Mack, great female pop vocalist, Taylor Mack, uh, cut one of my songs as, as a single um, earlier this year. And I'm, I'm, I'm consciously making a, sort of a decision to go more that direction. Is it hard to write for other people? No. No, because I don't. I just, write, I just write what I write and... And uh, I don't, I don't think about who might do it, um, but I do. It's, it is a conscious decision. As a folk rock singer, a song as a folk rocker can have can have a lot of poetic license to it. It can be longer. It can develop more, like like you're an old newspaper man, and so it can be more like a newspaper than than the. I prefer recovering newspaper. Yeah, <laughs> then the five o'clock news, which sort of lays it out. So you know, folk rock stuff can can have much more to it, versus a commercial song. You know, that's going to be a hit with a major label or a commercial artist, a single. You know, top forty artists or top forty country artists or someone like those songs are more constrained, and so yeah, there's a mental shift to write those. Have you? I guess, have you ever, or do you still? I, I, I'm not sure even what the right question here is. Do you still have the dream of that hit song? Oh, hell yes. Oh, was, that, was that too brash? <laughs> um, no, only all the time. Uh, you know, and, and I've, had, I've had some semi-hits, and you know, as a producer, and been on the charts, and that, that kind of stuff. Is it still a driving force? Yeah, oh yeah, always, you know. Um, not so much for me, I mean, as I'm transitioning to a, to a songwriter, I'm looking for a time when, when I hear more of my songs as hits by other artists, absolutely. Uh, but for the label, you know, we're always hoping that we'll be able to kick one of our artists up to that next level of labels and and make some money in in the process as well and so it's always it's always a progression there's always more to do you know it uh my wife likes to say I'm a workaholic. I like to use the term work enthusiast because <laughs> uh, you know to be to be in the music business, to be in the arts doesn't matter whether you're a musician, an actor, uh, a fine artist, a sculptor, a painter, a producer, whatever it is. If you're going to make a living in the arts, you're going to work all the time. It's just sort of what it is. And well, and there's a difference when you 
absolutely love what you do. So yeah, it's it's a big difference when you love what you do, you know. And and there's so much variety being being an artist with with all that it entails, you know. I'm I'm very much I'm looking at that guitar and that stand over there, and they're singing a siren song to me because I've been working on a new song, and it just, you know, when you're a writer, you write. And I know you've probably heard that before from writers. You sit down and you write, and that's what you do. <coughs> well, you were working on that when I came when I came in. Can you can you tease sure. and let them know what sure. you're what you're working on? Sure. We are going to take a short break and hear from our sponsor, and then we're going to hear that song Rick was telling us about. We always talk to people about shopping local, the importance of shopping local. Here's one great reason about shopping local is that you know the people you're doing business with. They're your friends, they're your neighbors, they're people you go to church with, people you hang out with. There's no better example of that than today's sponsor, Bunch of Blinds. This local company is always making themselves available to help the greater community. Hey, not only are they great people in the community, but they also are great at their business. So when you need blinds or shades for your windows, interior decorating, they've got bedding, they've got headboards, mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. And the coolest thing, we always talk about this one, they even have some blinds that you can control with apps on your phone or with your voice to the Alexa or the Google. They are super cool. That is cool. Hey, check them out right in the heart of our city in downtown Lee Summit. Bunch of blinds at Lee Summit. 239 Southeast Main Street. all around so I said can I buy you a drink she said oh, see and I already played it wrong that's the way it was <laughs> there you go that's the way it was when I first wrote it so that's not the way it goes she came in and sat down looked the place around so I said can I buy you a drink she said sure but it must stop right there she only had one beer. Well, she was beautiful and blonde with intelligence and charm. I could have talked to her for hours. As that one beer grew on, thought she liked each other some when she emptied her glance. Didn't catch her name as she walked out of the bar. Didn't say a thing as she got into a car. Should have gotten up to stop her before she got too far. I didn't catch her name as she walked out of the bar. So it goes on, has another story. The open mic was empty, but this one singer was good. We flirted a bit between songs. Her round was done, we got cozy and warm. In a booth at the back. Well, she was smiling and smart, drawing thoughts from her songs. The prose flowed from her lips. And as the night grew long, wanted to hear more of her songs. We sat there and talked for another hour. 
side of the bar I didn't say a thing as she got into the car Should've got up to stop her before she got to She said, why don't you sit down for a drink? I had a little while, so I sat down and smiled. Tried my best to be witty. Well, some girls crash as exciting, secure with inviting this stranger to sit for a drink. As the night moved towards dawn, I thought she could be the one. Then I heard last call. Before she got too far I asked her for her name As she walked out On the bar So, half a song It's almost there <laughs> <laughs> That's fun just to have the process To let people see that It see is, that and it changes When you walked in, I was just going from a the previous version where I had some of my green scratches on it to this version and now that I've played it I can see I played a couple places wrong in it I still don't have it memorized the right way I stayed on the major chords instead of going to the minor chords but there's almost a song there now well Rick I want to thank you for joining us thank and you if people want to find you or find Russian Winter Records, where do they go? They can go to Russian Winter Records at bandcamp.com they can go to Instagram at Rick underscore Gordon on Instagram or at Rick Gordon will probably take them there hashtag Rick Gordon on Instagram and you can find a link to the label and our music blog and, um, and if they haven't already Farmer's Market in downtown Lee come Summit to the on Farmer's Wednesdays Market. and Saturdays yep. come to the next year's 4th Friday's Art Walk they're, they're over for this year now but we'll have them back next year thank you Rick thank you appreciate it appreciate it Hope you're enjoying Link to Lee Summit's weekly conversations with people from our community. If you like local stuff, I urge you to check out a new podcast, Varsity Kansas City. It's a new podcast every week talking about high school football in Lee Summit and throughout the Kansas City metro area. Check it out at varsitykc.com or subscribe and download it from your favorite podcast app. New episodes every Thursday. You have been listening to Community Voices, a weekly podcast celebrating the individuals who make our community. Catch the show each Monday at linktoleesummit.com or subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Do you have an interesting story? Does your neighbor, teacher, classmate, or friend? Let us know about it. Connect with us at linktoleesummit.com or through Facebook or Instagram at linktoleesummit.com.